Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of MCG's Pediatric Podcast. You may recognize us from a previous episode. My name is Morgan Franklin, and I'm a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm joined once more by my classmate, Ifra Warris. Ifra, do you want to say hi? Hey everyone, it's Ifra. I'm glad to be back, and I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce our other guest. Today, we are joined by Dr. Arden Conway, who is going to be helping us with our discussion. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Conway, and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. This means that I work in the pediatric intensive care unit and take care of children from just after birth to about 21 years old with all different types of critical illnesses and injuries. Awesome. Let's get started on today's topic. Last time we were on the MCG Pediatric Podcast, we discussed a case on pediatric acetaminophen overdose, covering a hypothetical patient's presentation, clinical progression, and the diagnostic and treatment measures involved. Today, we are going to be continuing with the theme of toxicity in pediatric patients by covering the related topic of salicylate poisoning in children. Dr. Conway, could you tell us why this topic is important for our listeners? Absolutely. So just like acetaminophen, salicylates can be present in easily available over-the-counter medications. The primary medication we think about is aspirin, which is commonly used and probably present in most of our listeners' drawers and cabinets at home. But did you know that salicylates are also present in other medications, such as Pepto-Bismol, topical acne and wart removal products, oil of wintergreen, and Bengay? It's important to remember that co-ingestion or use of multiple substances containing salicylates can lead to an increased chance of toxicity, especially in young children. And while the dose required for an adult to develop fatal toxicity ranges from 10 to 30 grams, doses as low as 3 grams can result in death in pediatric patients. Exactly. Fortunately, aspirin use in kids has actually declined since it was linked to Ray syndrome, which is a potentially fatal disease affecting the liver and brain presents in children after a viral illness and ingestion of aspirin. However, the wide availability of salicylates still makes it an important topic to discuss. According to the American Association of Poison Control Center, analgesics like salicylates were the most common cause of all reports made to poison control in 2020. And in kids younger than five, exposure to analgesics is the third most common report made. Aspirin alone or in combination with other medications was responsible for 5,751 cases of reported pediatric exposure to poison, with other salicylates being responsible for an additional 429 reported exposures. While pediatric mortality from accidental ingestion of salicylates in these cases is fairly low, most salicylate deaths result from intentional ingestion in adolescents. As we continue our discussion, we will learn about the serious medical consequences of untreated salicylate toxicity in children. Some of these include seizures, rhabdomyolysis, pulmonary edema, cerebral edema, and renal failure. It's so important that we understand how to recognize signs of salicylate toxicity so that we can intervene, treat, and manage it appropriately. Ifra, let's continue our discussion with a clinical case. Today we have a three-year-old male who is brought to the emergency room by his father for worsening abdominal pain, fever, and breathing faster than usual for the last eight hours. The father is also worried because his son has been difficult to arouse and seems a bit confused. Great case. Okay, so we're in the emergency room and need to think fast. Before we discuss differential diagnoses, what are the three critical components of primary management when you are presented with any ill patient? Well, first we would want to make sure they have an airway and are breathing. We would also want to check and make sure their circulation is adequate. Exactly. With any patient that may be critically ill, the first step is always assessment and stabilization of the airway, breathing, and circulation, or the ABCs. 
This should occur as soon as the patient presents, but we will discuss this more in depth later when we discuss management. Once we have made sure the patient is stable, what are we considering in our differential diagnosis at this time? Well, it would be important to think about life-threatening diagnoses like appendicitis, sepsis, DKA, meningitis, and of course, some type of ingestion or exposure to a toxin. And we shouldn't forget about more common causes, including gastroenteritis, intussusception, urinary tract infections, electrolyte abnormalities, and pneumonia. Great. So back to our case. We definitely need a more detailed history and review of systems to help narrow down our differential. What else do we know, Ifra? Per the father, the patient had an upset stomach yesterday that had improved after giving the child some Pepto-Bismol, but he began feeling bad again this morning. The patient has had no headache, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, or changes in urination. The father reports no recent sick contacts and no travel or contact with anyone that has traveled outside the country. He attends daycare during the week. All right, and what about a physical exam? On physical exam, we see a lethargic-looking child holding his hands over his stomach. His vitals are a temperature of 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit, heart rate 136, BP 82 over 40, respiratory rate 35, and O2 saturation 97%. The child is reluctant to have his abdomen examined, and he appears in pain when it is palpated. Mucous membranes are slightly dry, and skin turgor is decreased. There is no neck stiffness. Okay, let's start with the vitals. It's important to keep in mind that normal vital signs vary by the patient's age. Our patient is tachycardic, tachypnic, with hyperpnea, febrile, and slightly hypotensive. So with vitals like these in a three-year-old, something is definitely up, and we need to be on the lookout for serious causes of illness. Exactly. Additionally, altered mental status in a child this young is a serious pertinent positive. Having an altered mental status is generally a change in mental function due to some type of illness, disorder, or injury that can affect your brain. Typically, the patient will experience changes in awareness, movement, and behaviors. Altered mental status can also be variable based on age. What do you think I mean by that? Well, in adults or geriatric patients, you might typically have symptoms of delirium where the patient is disoriented or having unusual behaviors. Other patients might have some type of dementia or psychosis. But in children, altered mental status can be subtle. Infants and children may be more irritable, sleepy, or less interactive than usual. Great job. So, for our patient today, he is drowsy and seems a bit confused. It's important to note that our patient presented to the emergency department. If a patient with these findings were to show up in an outpatient setting, such as a doctor's office, you should advise them to go to the emergency department as soon as possible. So, Dr. Conway, what's next once a patient like ours shows up to the ED with these signs and symptoms? Based on the patient's symptoms, let's categorize our differential into systemic, infectious, and ingestible causes of illness. Tachycardia and tachypnea, while very nonspecific signs, can indicate metabolic acidosis. If for what diagnostic tests can we do in the emergency room to quickly determine our patient's acid-based status? Well, we could get a blood gas, which would help us figure out the type of acidosis our patient is experiencing, if any. Correct. A blood gas will give us valuable information and help us determine if our patient has a respiratory, metabolic, or mixed acidosis. A wide variety of causes can result in metabolic acidosis, one of the more common in children being diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. So I know that DKA is often the first presentation of type 1 diabetes and can occur even in very young children. Let's elaborate on some of the features we should be on the lookout for if we were suspecting DKA. 
In the days and weeks prior to an episode of DKA, patients can have increased urinary frequency, increased thirst, and weight loss as they begin to show signs of potentially undiagnosed diabetes. Once DKA develops, symptoms can include Kussmaul breathing, stomach pain, confusion, nausea, and vomiting. More specifically, Kussmaul breathing is characterized by rapid and regular deep respirations that occur in response to metabolic acidosis. The body responds to the metabolic acidosis, which in the case of DKA is due to the accumulation of keto acids, by increasing the rate and depth of breathing to blow off more CO2. Yes, that is correct. DKA can often be the first presentation of undiagnosed and uncontrolled diabetes in children and can present with a wide range of symptoms. Okay, that covers one of our must-not-miss metabolic causes. But what about the possible infectious and ingestible causes you mentioned? Our patient does attend daycare, and although the father denies sick context, it is possible he was exposed to another child with an illness. A viral illness could explain the patient's fever, malaise, and abdominal pain, as well as the signs of dehydration on physical exam. Pneumonia is also an infectious cause that can result in abdominal pain and increased work of breathing in children. Okay, then we would definitely want to proceed with obtaining a better history. I'd want to ask more about his upset stomach from the previous day. That's a good idea. And it's also possible he has a viral or bacterial meningitis based on his fever and confusion. Meningitis is another must-not-miss diagnosis that can quickly lead to morbidity and mortality if untreated. We should check for neck stiffness or pain on physical exam to evaluate for meningitis. Remember that although both neck stiffness and pain are absent in this patient, we cannot rule out meningitis from a lack of physical exam findings alone, and a lumbar puncture may be necessary. You both made some very important points. Now, Ifra, what is another life-threatening diagnosis we must consider in this acutely ill patient with confusion and fever? I'm thinking something else related to infection. What about sepsis? Yes, sepsis in children can present more subtly than in adults, which is dangerous because a child can be very ill before someone realizes they're septic. Tachycardia is one of the first signs of sepsis in children, in addition to fever, malaise, dehydration, and GI upset. Hypotension develops later, so don't always rely on that finding. These signs and symptoms all fit with our patient's initial presentation, so we need to add this to our must-not-miss diagnoses. Okay, so we would definitely need to do a sepsis workup as part of our initial evaluation. What other causes should we be concerned about for this patient? Well, all young children like to explore and do so frequently with their mouths. In a patient of this age with an acute onset of abdominal pain and potential metabolic disorder, I would want to evaluate for any ingested substances. It would be good to ask the dad if medications are kept locked up and out of reach of the patient. Additionally, pediatric dosing can be tricky, and sometimes parents unknowingly give their child more medication than is safe. It would also be good to ask about any medications given to the child recently, both prescribed or over-the-counter. Okay, that brings us back to the ingestion part of our differential. Exactly. We have a very young patient where exploration is second nature, and it is always a possibility that the patient may have gotten into a medicine cabinet, kitchen drawer, or even the mom's purse. So we just covered a lot in our differential because we have a pretty sick kid presenting with nonspecific symptoms. Let's circle back and discuss what we have reviewed so far. Our patient is a three-year-old male who came in with an eight-hour history of worsening abdominal pain, confusion, and fever. He has not experienced any other GI symptoms, headaches, or recent sick contacts. He presents with a fever, tachycardia, and tachypnea. 
On physical exam, he presents with diffuse abdominal pain to palpation and is noted to be lethargic with dry mucous membranes. Due to our patient presenting with several nonspecific findings, it's important for us to consider diagnoses such as DKA, meningitis, sepsis, and ingestible toxins when executing our diagnostic workup. Thanks for summarizing the patient's initial presentation for us, Ifra. So the patient's mom is called from home and told dad she found the medicine cabinet opened with a Pepto-Bismol bottle empty. This definitely raises our suspicion for drug toxicity as Pepto-Bismol is known to contain salicylates. Dr. Conway, how would you begin the workup for a patient with suspected salicylate ingestion? In addition to a good history and physical, I would first order a CBC, CMP, lactate, and an ABG. If ingestion with a substance is suspected, but we aren't sure what that substance is, we may also want to get acetaminophen serum levels, salicylate serum levels, alcohol level, and a urine drug screen. How does our patient's history and physical demonstrate some key findings of salicylate toxicity? The patient's combination of tachypnea and tachycardia are concerning for a metabolic acidosis. In salicylate toxicity, there is a pattern of respiratory alkalosis in the first few hours after ingestion, but this gives way to either a metabolic acidosis or a mixed respiratory alkalosis and metabolic acidosis later on. Let's discuss how salicylates cause these changes. Sure. So initially salicylates act on respiratory centers in the medulla to increase respirations, which increases the amount of CO2 blown off. Salicylates also disrupt cellular metabolism by uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation, inhibiting the TCA or Krebs cycle, and inhibiting amino acid synthesis, resulting in increased lactate and salicylate metabolites that contribute to metabolic acidosis. The body attempts to deal with this decrease in pH by further increasing hyperventilation. During this time, you also have a paradoxical aciduria. This is because too much potassium has been excreted in the urine during the initial compensatory alkaluria when potassium and sodium bicarbonate were excreted. Salicylates are known to stimulate the medullary respiratory center. Patients may have a notable increase in minute ventilation. Paying attention to the rate and depth of breathing may be a critical indicator of salicylate toxicity. As there is a further increase in hyperventilation, respiratory fatigue sets in if the body cannot compensate for severe acidosis. At this point, metabolic acidosis would worsen and lead to hemodynamic instability and end organ damage. We see that our patient also presents with a fever. This is because salicylates uncouple oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria, as we've already mentioned. This may result in an increase in body temperature because this process generates heat. Because fluids, electrolytes, and glucose can all potentially be affected in salicylate toxicity, patients are often already in a hypovolemic state due to the elevated metabolic rate. In a hypovolemic state, it would be more difficult to dissipate heat. Altogether, these would cause elevated body temperature. Okay, and for the tachycardia? Tachycardia may occur in patients due to hypovolemia, as mentioned earlier, as well as agitation and general distress. Understanding the pathophysiology of salicylates in relation to clinical presentation is an important part of guiding the workup, diagnosis, and management of the condition. If tell us some other signs and symptoms we should ask about. So in addition to tachycardia and tachypnea, tinnitus, deafness, and diaphoresis can all be found in acute ingestion of salicylates. The presence of these in the context of our patient's presentation would further support a diagnosis of salicylate poisoning. Correct. These are all signs and symptoms that can occur in a patient who has salicylate toxicity. 
However, don't forget our initial presentation may be pretty nonspecific. In addition to checking for all of these signs and symptoms, what else should we be paying attention to? I would also do a careful examination for evidence of pulmonary edema, such as crackles. Pulmonary edema is a rare but severe complication of salicylate toxicity and would indicate that a very large dose had been ingested. Additionally, pulse oximetry should be used to evaluate for hypoxemia. Thanks for those additional pointers. After talking to the family, we also get some of the labs back. Our patient exhibits leukocytosis, a metabolic acidosis, hypokalemia, and a mildly elevated creatinine. His salicylate levels are 250 milligrams per deciliter, well above the 100 milligrams per deciliter's reference range, which is indicative of a severe salicylate intoxication. So, Dr. Conway, how do we handle the patient's condition once the diagnosis has been established? There are several aspects of managing this condition in a child. We've already covered the triage of this patient, which needs to happen immediately upon presentation. However, I want to draw attention to some of the key points in managing this patient's ABCs. When addressing the airway of a patient with salicylate toxicity, intubation should be avoided if possible. Why is that so important? Great question. We first need to understand that minute ventilation, or the total volume of gas entering the lungs per minute, decreases following intubation. Decreased minute ventilation leads to an increased CO2 concentration and ultimately worsens acidosis. This can lead to redistribution of salicylates into the peripheral tissues. All right, so if I understand correctly, intubation can actually worsen the toxicity? Yes, that's correct. Unfortunately, prophylactic intubation has led to the death of patients in the past. Indications for intubation should be reserved for patients with hypoventilation, respiratory distress, obtundation, or severe metabolic acidosis. That makes sense. Thank you for clearing that up. What are the other steps we should consider as part of our ABCs? So, we've covered the airway, or the A, and next is breathing. To manage breathing, supplemental oxygen should be administered. If our patient presented with pulmonary edema, we would continue primarily with oxygen, followed by CPAP if necessary. Intubation with positive indexpiratory pressure may be necessary in refractory cases or the indications we discussed before. Okay, and what about the C, or circulation? Management of circulation includes administration of IV fluids to replace fluid losses from elevated body temperature, vomiting, diaphoresis, and an elevated metabolic rate. After an initial bolus with isotonic fluid, the typical maintenance fluids would consist of 5% dextrose with sodium bicarbonate and potassium supplementation. Don't forget to think about the patient as a whole, though. It's important to recognize that IV fluids must be given with caution to avoid overloading the patient and contributing to or causing pulmonary edema. That's a good point. What other treatment goals do we need to consider once we've addressed the ABCs? Next, we need to correct the imbalances of fluid and electrolyte so the excretion of the toxin is maximized. To do this, we increase systemic pH by sodium bicarbonate. Potassium is typically also supplemented because patients tend to present with hypokalemia due to excess urinary excretion, which interferes with urine alkalinization. This ties into elimination enhancement, which we'll expand upon in a minute. Okay, that sounds like a good start. Are there any other initial interventions that we should consider? Yes. We should also consider administering glucose. Salicylate intoxication can decrease CNS glucose levels, which may not be reflected in peripheral glucose readings. Supplemental glucose should be administered regardless of glucose concentration. Our patient presents with altermental status, so we should be more concerned for this possible effect of salicylate poisoning. Those are all great learning points. 
Okay. Now that we've stabilized our patient and provided initial supportive care, are there any specific treatments for salicylate toxicity? Following supportive care, activated charcoal is typically administered to children and adolescents to allow for gastrointestinal decontamination. However, this is contraindicated in patients presenting with signs of altered mental status, such as our patient. They may be unable to protect their airway unless endotracheal intubation is performed first. That makes sense. I know you also mentioned something called elimination enhancement earlier. What is that and how would it help treat our patient? Elimination enhancement refers to the methods that maximizes the body's elimination of salicylates. While activated charcoal may provide some benefit by preventing ongoing salicylate absorption, elimination enhancement can include urine alkalinization or hemodialysis. Could you go into a little more detail on those interventions for us? Sure thing. Urine alkalinization enhances the excretion and shortens the half-life of salicylates in patients. The alkaline environment created by this therapy also reduces the amount of tissue toxicity that occurs. The goal of urine alkalization is to achieve a urine pH of greater than 7.5 while maintaining a serum pH that does not exceed 7.55. Okay, so now we know what our goal is, but how is that achieved? This is usually done by administering an IV bolus of sodium bicarbonate, followed by a continuous infusion. This therapy is started following initial fluid resuscitation efforts. If our patient was hypokalemic, we also would add potassium chloride, as we previously mentioned. This sounds like something that would require consistent monitoring. When would we know to stop the sodium bicarbonate infusion? Initially, the infusion rate should be titrated to maintain urine pH at 7.5 and serum pH under 7.55. Afterwards, fluid administration is based on urine output and ongoing fluid loss. What is a way we could monitor our patient's net fluid loss? Well, we can monitor our patient's I's and O's and alter our fluid administration based off of that. Exactly. And then after treatment has begun, the recommendation is that the infusion should be continued until there's no more clinical symptoms and the plasma salicylate concentration is less than 30 milligrams per deciliter. Good to know. As we've previously talked about, some patients with salicylate toxicity already present in a state of alkalemia due to the respiratory alkalosis. Should sodium bicarbonate infusions be withheld from these patients? Studies have actually shown that patients should be treated with sodium bicarbonate infusions to promote urine alkalization as long as their serum pH is under 7.55. What is a way we could monitor our patient's acid-base status during this treatment? Well, I know we could get a blood gas to check the patient's pH. That's right. To prevent severe alkalemia, blood gases can be obtained every two hours to monitor serum pH. All patients undergoing urine alkalization undergo regular measurements of urine pH and serum potassium. You had mentioned hemodialysis also has a role in the elimination of salicylates. How does that work exactly? Hemodialysis can help remove salicylates from the body. For that reason, nephrology should be consulted earlier in the patient's presentation, even if there are no acute indications for dialysis at that time. This is because salicylate poison can lead to swift deterioration of a child's clinical condition. Okay, so when exactly is hemodialysis indicated in a patient? Would our patient be a candidate? That depends on the severity. For mild to moderate cases of toxicity, the management entails what we have already spoken about. However, in cases of severe intoxication, we need to reduce salicylate levels in the body quickly with dialysis. Okay, I understand. What are some signs or symptoms that indicate a patient is severely intoxicated? 
So CNS disturbances such as coma, seizure, or other focal neurologic deficits all indicate severe toxicity. Other signs include pulmonary or cerebral edema, renal insufficiency, intractable acidosis, deterioration despite aggressive supportive care, or exceedingly high plasma salicylate concentrations, over 100 milligrams per deciliter. Good to know. Now that we've reviewed management, are there any treatments we should avoid in our patient? Great question. Diuresis with an osmotic diuretic, such as mannitol, should be avoided. Oh, that's very interesting. Could you clarify a little bit? It can cause pulmonary or cerebral edema as a side effect, which is already a potential complication of salicylate toxicity. Additionally, acetazolamide, or Diamox, should not be given to these patients. This drug eliminates bicarbonate through the kidneys, which allows for alkaline urine production. It also causes a systemic metabolic acidosis that may prove detrimental with patients with salicylate overdose. That's a good point. All right, so now we have some more information. What is your plan right now? So based on our discussion, we would continue with supportive care to maintain oxygenation, increase minute ventilation, and replete glucose, potassium, and electrolytes. While sodium bicarbonate infusions would address the urine alkalinization, we would also need to consult nephrology because our patient is a candidate for hemodialysis due to his confusion. In this case, we would also opt to withhold activated charcoal because our patient exhibits some signs of altered mental status. Most importantly, we should continue to monitor our patient's salicylate levels and acid-base status regularly. Great. That sounds like a good plan and highlights some of the concepts we discussed earlier. Can you guys think of any other aspects of care we should consider? Well, now that we've handled the medical management in the acute setting, we should probably decide whether or not to admit this patient. That's a good point. Dr. Conway, do you have any thoughts on that? So our patient is currently receiving urine alkalization and hemodialysis, so we need to be admitted to the PICU for further management. PICU placement is needed for this treatment and continuous monitoring of our patient's acid-base status and serum salicylate levels. Okay, so what types of follow-up should we think about once our patient is medically stable? We should monitor our patient for any recurrence of symptoms. So for patients who have overdosed on salicylates intentionally, mental health evaluation is needed after they have been stabilized medically. That makes sense. What are the discharge criteria if a patient has been admitted to the hospital? Typically, patients can be discharged if they are asymptomatic and clinically well without an increase in serum salicylate levels over a period of six to eight hours. While a serum salicylate level over 100 milligrams per deciliter is considered a severe toxicity, patients can present with severe in-organ damage even when levels are near therapeutic or decreasing. For this reason, it's important to account for our patient's entire clinical picture when making this decision. Definitely. This was a really interesting case that highlighted important takeaways for salicylate toxicity, as well as a few other conditions. Several of the management strategies we discussed today are relevant to other drug toxicities and the basic management of an acutely ill pediatric patient. Before we end our discussion, let's have our expert briefly summarize some of the major points we hit today. The floor is yours, Dr. Conway. In a young child who presents with signs of confusion and abdominal pain, we should always consider accidental drug ingestion in our differential. Before we do anything else, what do we need to assess first? Airway, breathing, and circulation. Exactly. Once we have established that the patient is stable, we can move on to the rest of our evaluation. Our patient presented with a fever coupled with tachycardia, tachypnea, and mild hypotension. Due to these concerning vital signs, we need to work quickly. 
What are some of our must-not-miss diagnoses? We need to make sure to evaluate for DKA, meningitis, sepsis, and ingestion of toxic substances. Perfect. For this reason, we should get a very thorough history from the family. We should also perform a comprehensive neurological and abdominal examination. Paying close attention to any signs of neck stiffness, particular rash, irritability, dehydration, and changes in appetite. Next, we can move on to the management. Ifra, can you tell me how you would approach a further workup? For our workup, we should obtain a CBC, CMP, lactate, ABG, as well as salicylate and acetaminophen serum levels. An EKG, chest x-ray, and head CT should also be obtained. All of these components make up the basics of an initial diagnostic workup and management for our patient. Due to our patient's nonspecific presentation, a broad workup is initially performed. The diagnosis is established by serum salicylate levels in conjunction with our patient's clinical picture. By the time the salicylate levels have returned, patient should have already received supplemental oxygen and IV fluids with 5% dextrose. Morgan, do you remember the two other components we must include in our IV fluids? We should also add sodium bicarbonate to increase systemic pH and potassium supplementation to correct hypokalemia. Exactly. Our main treatment for this patient would be elimination enhancement. If patients exhibit exceedingly high salicylate levels or CNS disturbances, we would also start hemodialysis. Continuous monitoring of the patient's acid-base status and serum salicylate levels is required for all patients with salicylate toxicity. Okay, that's a good reminder. What about disposition? Disposition is based on the entire clinical picture in conjunction with the serum salicylate levels. Patients who are clinically recovered with no increase in salicylate levels over 6 to 8 hours may be discharged. In patients with severe toxicity above 100 mg per deciliter, two readings of decreasing salicylate levels must be seen before discharge can be considered. That was an excellent summary of everything that we've talked about today, Dr. Conway. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge and expertise on this subject with us. To all those listening, hopefully you have now gained a better understanding of how salicylate toxicity may be diagnosed and managed in children. Additionally, regional poison control centers in the United States are available at all times for consultation on patients who are critically ill, requiring admission, or have clinical pictures that are unclear. They can be reached at 1-800-222-1222. An additional thanks to Dr. Jennifer Tucker and Dr. Rebecca Yang who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.